Let's open our Bibles to the little epistle of Jude. Jude is a very similar chapter to 2 Peter chapter 2. It was several years ago I preached to you from 2 Peter chapter 2, emphasizing the text that we opened with a little while ago. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. It is common today to want to preach that you can do anything and God will just take you if you love Jesus. It doesn't matter how you worship Him. It doesn't matter how you live. But that isn't what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches a strict standard of conduct for His churches and a strict standard of conduct for His saints. And there is liberty in that conduct because it is freeing us from our flesh and our lusts to follow Him. The epistle of Jude, this short little epistle, describes the dangers and the errors of wicked men who creep into churches. It's got a simple message. It's very short, and it gives us a few things to do at the end of it. Its body is a description of the character and the lies and the future of these wicked men. In verse 3, and we're not going to cover the epistle, but I just want to give you a little bit of a refresher what it's about. I hope you read it last night based on our preparatory email. But verse 3 says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the theme for the epistle. When I gave all diligence, when I considered very carefully what I ought to write to you and weighed the matters that would be of most benefit to you, I wrote because it was needful for me to tell you to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. The true worship of God does not change. Jesus and the apostles established it once for all. It was delivered once. It wasn't invented once. It was delivered once from God through His Son, Jesus Christ, through the apostles to us. And it's needful for us to earnestly contend for it. Now, to contend for something is to fight for it. We want to fight for the true worship of God in these last days. And we want to do it passionately because it says earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And here's the reason in verse 4, there are certain men crept in unawares. They don't come in and tell you, I want to take you off the true worship of God. They come in sounding and looking like sheep. But they're wolves in sheep's clothing and they're servants of the devil. They've been ordained before of old to eternal condemnation. They are ungodly men and they turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. That God loves you and will allow you to live any way you want and accept you just the way you are. And so they teach. So we have billboards around our city such as, if you come back, we promise not to throw the book at you. Well, I hope when we go to church, we get the book thrown at us. Because we need the book thrown at us. Because the book, the Bible, tells us how we're supposed to be living. That is the epistle of Jude. You need to earnestly contend for the faith because there are false teachers that will overthrow Christianity by their lies, deception, and lascivious living. There's a few examples of God judging the people of Israel when He brought them out of Egypt, judging the angels in verse 6, judging Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. He describes the character of these wicked teachers, verses 8 through 10, that they have no respect for God-given authority. He, he shows in verse 11 that they follow the pattern of the three false teachers of the Old Testament. Cain, who was envious because his brother was more righteous and would not worship God acceptably. Balaam, who did it for filthy lucre. And Korah, who would not submit himself to God's chosen man, Moses. He then describes them in verses 12 and 13 as reprobates, twice dead, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Then he invokes a prophecy of Enoch, 
way back in Genesis chapter 5, Enoch spoke of these same false teachers in verses 14 and 15. He describes them as murmurers and complainers. He tells his readers that the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ had already warned about these men in verses 17 and 18. And then he concludes his epistle with verses 24 and 25 saying, God is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless. We want to look at verses 20 and 21. In the face of so much compromise around us, we have a duty given to us by God, and it's found here in this epistle of warning. I sent you a link yesterday. I hope that maybe some of you were entertained by it, because my son was certainly flabbergasted by it on Tuesday evening after coming home from Greenville Tech. There, a young lady from uh, the largest church in our county and the fastest growing church in our county had engaged him in a conversation for a good while and told about the, the rage among the youth of the Redemption World Outreach Center. The rage is that in a Dr. Seuss book that was written in 1954, there is an embedded prophecy that Jim Carrey is going to be converted and overthrow abortion in America. So they've all gone to Tennessee Titan Stadium just two weeks ago. They all crammed into Tennessee Titan Stadium. It didn't matter if you were a charismatic or a Catholic, a Mormon or a Baptist. They had communion together, and they all prayed together that Dr. Seuss's book would be fulfilled in America. You say, that's impossible. That is impossible. That's what what Daniel thought on Tuesday night. And he came home and he said, Dad, have you ever heard of this movement that's based on a Dr. Seuss book? I said, son, I have not. I'm in ignorance. I do not know what you are talking about. And he gave me the nuts and bolts of it because this young lady had told him about it. It's hard for you to believe what I just said. But I gave you the links that you go read it yourself. It was just a couple of weeks ago. They filled that place. There's a man named Lou Engel who his, his ministry is to go around and cause youth rallies in various places. He got 450,000 young people to gather there near the Washington Monument back in the year 2000 because they were going to pray for our leaders. Well, praying for our leaders is a good thing, but God did not call any man to establish the House of Justice. That's the name of his little program and rallying point there in Washington, nor did he call him to establish the call for the young people in Tennessee Titan Stadium. There's only one institution in the New Testament. It's the local church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only institution. And to haul all these young people out of it and to put them someplace where they can all get a warm and fuzzy feeling through the psychology of crowds is vanity. And it's a fulfillment of this kind of thing described in the little epistle of Jude. That through great swelling words of vanity and all the fables and entertainment, these young people are being led away from the sober doctrine of the Word of God. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and shall be turned away from the truth and turned unto fables. That is a prophecy that we are seeing the fulfillment of. My point today is not to worry about Lou Engel or the Redemption World Outreach Center or Dr. Seuss. As I told a brother before the service, I'm wondering what the prophecy is embedded in green eggs and ham. That's the one I remember reading as a child. Jude 1, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. These are the words we want. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That is what we're supposed to do. If you read the book of Jude, you will find that introductory exhortation to earnestly contend for the faith. Then you have all the verses up to verse 20, just describing these false teachers. Then you have 
some legs given to that exhortation on how we earnestly contend for the faith. It's right here in verses 20, 21, 22, and 23, and those are the only duties in the epistle. I'm going to leave 22 and 23 off today because I don't want to distract your mind from the four things contained in 20 and 21. Four issues that I want you to lay a hold of by the grace of God. And I am trusting His Spirit to cause these four things to be real and real important to each of you. When we look at verse 20, we have the word but introducing the verse, which means that we have had something said that verse 20 will be in opposition to. So we go back and read verse 19. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. This is his final statement of description of false teachers. These are the false teachers, the mockers of verse 18, the murmurers and complainers of verse 16, the ungodly speakers of verse 17, and so forth. They're summarized in verse 19. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. Reprobates, false teachers, separate themselves from the true churches of Jesus Christ. John would tell us in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not of us. That's why they went out from us. Because there was such a difference in their doctrine and the doctrine of the apostles. So they were always separating and coming up with some new church, a new name, a new denomination, a new way of worshiping God. Because they would not submit to the apostolic one. And that is also fulfilled in the words that I've already quoted to you. The time will, will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine but they'll heap to themselves a different kind of a teacher that will not teach them the Bible, but will entertain them. Called fables. I didn't make up that word. That's the Lord's word for what they preach. Fables. Do you think fables fits Dr. Seuss? What if you'd have met the Apostle Paul and handed him Dr. Seuss and said this is what they'll be preaching from in the year 2007? He just said, I know what I wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, but I didn't know it was going to be that bad. But it is that bad. These be they who separate themselves. The first thing they did is they left apostolic doctrine. And you know the warnings about that. Mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them is the warning of Scripture over and over through the New Testament. The second thing it says about them, they're sensual. This is not describing how romantic they were in their marriage relationships. This sensuality described here is that what's important to them are the lusts of their flesh. They operate by the senses rather than by spirit and truth. They are more cared, they, they carry more about their flesh. They're giving themselves over to lasciviousness, which is the unbridled lust of the flesh. They're sensual. What does the Bible say about that? The Bible calls them belly worshipers. When you care about the things of your physical body more than the things of your soul and the things of the kingdom of heaven, the Bible calls you a belly worshiper. I like the term. They worship their own bellies. It's in the Bible twice. It's in Romans 16, 18. It's in Philippians 3, 18 and 19. Because when you care about your body, the Lord just calls you a belly worshiper instead of a worshiper of the true and living God. These are sensual. They are more interested in pandering to the flesh, pleasing the flesh, entertaining people, rather than directing their hearts and minds to Christ Jesus and spiritual things. They mind earthly things rather than spiritual things. Then it says about them, they have not the Spirit. They may make a great fuss about the Spirit. And the church that I've mentioned once certainly does. It certainly claims to have more spirit than any other church in Greenville. But remember, the Apostle Paul warned that he feared, lest by any means, as the serpent had beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so their minds should be corrupted from the simplicity in Christ, and they would accept another gospel, another Jesus, and another spirit. And then he goes on in 2 Corinthians 11 to say that other spirit is none other than the devil himself 
who makes himself out to be an angel of light and a minister of righteousness and deceives men. So we have the description given in verse 19 of them. That's false teachers that would infect, affect, pervert, corrupt, and lead astray churches and saints. These be they who separate themselves from apostolic doctrine, are sensual in their orientation and emphasis, and they have not the Spirit of God. But, that's that's what verse 20 is all about. But, as opposed, as opposed to that, but, we want to be different than those teachers in verse 19. We want to hold fast and be grounded and settled in the doctrine given by the apostles. Look at Colossians chapter 1. You'll always want to keep your hand there at at the book of Jude. But come over to Colossians chapter 1. And before we even get into verse 20, let's look at what we want to be as opposed to what was just described to us in verse 19. Colossians chapter 1. Here's a description of the true saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.23 If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. We often go to this verse because it's one of the verses of the New Testament that tells us the Great Commission was fulfilled in the days of the apostles. This verse tells us that while Paul was still alive, the gospel had been preached to every creature under heaven. They had started in Jerusalem, they had spread out to Judea, they had spread to Samaria, and they had spread to the uttermost parts of the earth. The only one we have a real record of in his travels was Paul. And when we read about Paul's travels, we see he went as far as the the Italian boot, He went as far as Yugoslavia, which is called Illyricum in the book of Acts. He covered the Achaia and provinces and the Macedonian provinces of Greece. He covered modern-day Turkey. He covered a couple of the islands, the Mediterranean Sea. And he made his route up through the modern nation of Syria to get there. Just Paul. They didn't have to wait in airports to travel. If you've ever read about Philip... When he came up out of that oasis with the Ethiopian eunuch, it said he wasn't there anymore because he was in Azotus and he kept right on preaching. That's fast. I mean, you may get back to St. Louis tomorrow, brother, in a few hours. But Philip traveled faster. And he was an evangelist. But anyway, that's not the point for today. The point for today is the first half of this verse. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, these false teachers move away from the hope of the gospel. They're not grounded and settled. They come up with a new idea every week. New ideas are ridiculous. We have to hold fast the faithful word as we have been taught. Because it's those that move away that end up in error. We have to move very slowly. If God shows us something that is different than what we've believed in the past, we'll move. But we're going to move very slowly. Because haste in this matter is Highly dangerous. And it's the character trait of wicked men who are not grounded and settled in their faith. They, they separated themselves from the apostles. We're told to keep ourselves grounded and settled on the apostles. Look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We want to consider that word sensual. What is contrasted to the word sensual for Christians? True Christians. Romans 8.5 puts it this way. They that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. A man who is following the Spirit of God and is a true child of God, as these verses around Romans 8.5 will tell you, mind the things of the Spirit. Spiritual things. The spiritual things taught in the Word of God are the most important things. Things like justification. Things like adoption. Things like glorification. The resurrection of the body. The Lord Jesus Christ's incarnation in this world. His resurrection. His ascension to the right hand of God. His constant intercession for us. These spiritual things are what we mind. We mind loving the Lord Jesus Christ. We mind setting our affection on things above. 
not on things on the earth. But they that are after the flesh mind the things of the flesh. They want to be entertained. They want to have activities. They want to have programs rather than preaching. Now notice that it says about these people, they that are after the Spirit, they do mind the things of the Spirit. And we just read in Jude 1.19 that they have not the Spirit of God. And you can tell they have not the Spirit of God by the emphasis on all the other things they do. You know, the Apostle Paul in all of his epistles, and especially his pastoral epistles, put no emphasis on healing services. There's not a word to Timothy or Titus. Make sure you have some big crusades with healing services. They're always worried about the flesh. They're always talking about the body. They're always pandering to entertainment instead of the spiritual things that the Apostle Paul said were the important ones, some of which we'll take up in our second assembly today. Let's come back to Jude. Jude, verse 20. There is a sharp contrast. Some leave apostolic doctrine. You can test, you can check them out. How do you check the spirits? You see if they match up with the apostles or not. They don't match up with the apostles, then they're not of God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 says, Believe not every spirit. How do you tell whether it's the Spirit of God or not? Does it match up with what the apostles taught? So we come to verse 20. But ye, as opposed to what was in verse 19, but ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And other than verses 22 and 23, which are some practical advice on how to save erring brethren, verse 22 describing that you should be gentle with some, showing compassion, being patient, and others you should just jerk out of the carnality that they've got themselves into. Other than that, we have four things you want to learn in the book of Jude. Four things. And I just read them in verses 20 and 21. Building up ourselves in the most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Ghost. Keeping ourselves in the love of God. And looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And you know what? If you do those four things, you'll be saved from all the false teachers. And so that's why we want to learn them today. And by the grace of God, I hope that your souls will be stirred up and you will lay hold of these in your mind and in your souls. Building up yourselves on your most holy faith. That's the first thing we want to do. Now it says build up yourselves. We know that without Him, we can do nothing. However, there are times He expects us to exert ourselves based on responsibility He has given us. And He will bless the effort that we put forth. And this effort, we are to put forth in building up ourselves. What is your most holy faith? This is where we need to divide the Scriptures. Building up yourselves on your most holy faith. We could say, and this would be true, based on the rest of Scripture, that your most holy faith is the grace of faith that God gives you when you're born again. Because the Bible tells us to take that faith and add to it virtue into virtue, knowledge, and so forth in Second Peter chapter 1. We could do that, but we're not going to do that because the context of this book is speaking about something different. The context of this book is to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Verse 3. Verse 3 does not introduce the subject of the grace of faith in us. It introduces to us the subject of the gospel and doctrine of Jesus Christ. The faith once delivered to the saints. It's that body of doctrine that we're to contend for. It's that body of doctrine that we are to build up ourselves upon and which the rest of the New Testament emphasizes as an important part of church duties. I don't want to complicate your understanding of the Word of God, but I want you to know that when we read through the Word of God, there are divisions to be made. And we understand the faith that we're to build ourselves up upon is the faith, is the, is the faith, the religion, the gospel, the doctrine, the body of truth that God has given us through Jesus Christ and His apostles. It should be understandable from verse 3. The faith 
once delivered to the saints, being the topic of the epistle. And then verse 19, they be they who separate themselves. They leave apostolic doctrine, but we're to build ourselves up on that doctrine. It is most holy because it is the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ. When it calls it here, upon your most holy faith, the faith that we have, the, the doctrine and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that body of truth, that religion of Jesus Christ is most holy because it was designed by God Himself, sent through the Holy Lord Jesus Christ, laid down in the pages of Scripture by the Holy Spirit, and it is holy. Keeping your fingers at Jude, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and let us remind ourselves how holy and wonderful the truth is. It is most holy as well because it leads to holiness. The true faith leads to holy living. It is false faith, a false religion that leads to carnal Christianity. There is an error somewhere when you see carnal Christianity coming out of a church, a doctrine, or a ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness... That's the faith that we're to be built upon. The wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which is according to godliness. That's the most holy faith. And we want to build ourselves up upon it. Four things we want from this morning's assembly. We as a church, we as families, and we as saints must build up ourselves on our most holy faith. It is called your most holy faith in the way of possession because God has given the truth to the church and the church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. First Timothy 3.15 God has entrusted the truth to His churches. It is yours. It is ours. So we have that possessive word there in verse 20. But ye beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith. That doctrine that was committed to you, delivered once to the saints, is to be protected from all false teachers. How do we build ourselves up? Holding your fingers there at Jude, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. And you know these verses well, because I work hard to keep you from forgetting them. Because it it describes the purpose of our church, the purpose of the ministry, and how we work together. Ephesians chapter 4. The passage begins way back at verse 8, where the Apostle Paul is describing Jesus Christ ascending up into heaven and giving gifts to men. He lists those gifts in verse 11. He describes their work in verse 12. And then he sets the goal in verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. That's Jude 1.20. Building up yourselves on your most holy faith till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is a wonderful verse. That is why we are here together this morning is to accomplish this verse. To be united in the true faith to learn about the Son of God to become perfect, a perfect man as a church and as individuals until we can be measured by the stature of the fullness of Christ. We do not want to come short, not by an inch, of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, no, I skipped a verse, and it's an important verse. Verse 14, excuse me. Verse 14. Verse 13, I have read and explained to you briefly, verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. There, there's the goal for our church. Unified in the faith, learning about the Son of God, becoming a perfect man, measuring up to the full stature of Jesus Christ, that in that condition we would no longer be weak, separating from the apostles, 
being tossed to and fro by all sorts of doctrines that men invent and preach today. On the internet, on the television, on the radio, at crusades. They were doing it then, they're doing it now. We don't want to be tossed to and fro. We want to be grounded and settled. We want to build ourselves up on the most holy faith. We want one foundation, and that foundation being the truth of God as set forth by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there are men who use slight of speech, not slight of hand. Well, some healing is slight of hand, but there's slight of speech because they lie in wait to deceive Christians. But we're to speak the truth in love, verse 15, that we may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. We want to grow up and fill out the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's using a figure of speech here as if Jesus Christ had a body and He's the head. He's the head. He's directing all the members. And all the members of this church should grow up until they are a suitable body for the headship of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, our Lord and our Savior. Verse 16, from whom the whole body... The whom there is Jesus Christ just mentioned in verse 15. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Every joint and every part of this church and every joint and every part of every true church, needs to contribute for that body to grow up and edify itself in love. What does the word edify mean? But to build up. When you edify someone, you build them up. A building that is already up and in place is called an edifice. So when we read our Bibles, we understand that verse 16 is all of us working together to accomplish the goals described in verses 13 through 16, that we can build this church up to be the full body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do that by every joint and every part contributing to that project. Come back to Jude. There's Paul using similar words to Jude, saying you need to build up the church by every joint and every part contributing. We need to speak the truth in love. We need to be united in the faith. We need to learn the Son of God. We want to be a perfect man. That's our goal. Our goal is not to entertain. My goal this morning is not to give you a good feeling. My goal this morning is to give you a good goal so that you might reach the measure of the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have Jude's words, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, That's exactly what we had in Ephesians 4. Building themselves up on the faith of the apostles and no longer being tossed to and fro, but united in faith, contributing together and building their body up from that foundation of truth that God gave us through the apostles. How do we do it? Everything has to come back to the Bible. Everything has to come back to the Bible in this church, in your homes, and in your soul. Every decision you make needs to come back to the Bible because that's where the record of the apostles is laid down for us. Everything should be done to edification. We should not worry about pandering to our flesh nor entertaining each other. But as often as we can, we should be edifying each other. When we get together to encourage and lift each other up in the true apostolic religion so that we will not be tempted to ever move away from it, that our children will be established in it. We should use every assembly for that purpose. We need to be growing. The Bible says laying apart, laying aside a number of things. It says desire the sincere milk of the Word that ye can grow thereby. We are not building ourselves up. We're not bodybuilding unless we're growing. And the only way we can grow is to desire the sincere milk of the Word that is the sustaining food for our souls. And it's the Word of God. Anything contrary to the Word of God is vanity. It's darkness. It's wasted effort on your part to learn it. We want to learn the Word of God and build our foundation on that goal. Every landmark that I've taught you, our doctrinal landmarks, our practical landmarks, 
All of our landmarks are given to us by the apostles. We want to hold them fast. We want to learn them, teach them to our children, and defend them. You know, a lot of churches are more worried about building up themselves in numbers and facilities than they are what I'm talking about. And it's a shame. They're building programs. Are a main thrust of the whole church gathering more money to build more buildings, to build a gymnasium, and considering that, and they think they're doing something to the glory of God. Where in the world is a gymnasium ever recommended to a church? A gymnasium was something used in the days of the apostles by the Greeks who had no knowledge of the God of heaven. We want to build ourselves up on the most holy faith, not on our facilities. I don't care where we worship. We can worship in a tent or in the woods. We can worship in a rented room or this place. It doesn't matter. Are we going to build ourselves up to look like the true body of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what counts. Fathers, do you need to communicate the truth to your wives and your children? you need to remind them of it and establish them in it? Or they will be led astray by the error of the wicked. We must build ourselves up on our most holy faith. That holy faith was given to us by a charge from the God of heaven. He has mercifully given it to us, and we want to defend it and hold it fast in these perilous times. The second duty that we have in verse 20 is to pray in the Holy Ghost. Praying in the Holy Ghost. You know, the Apostle Paul gave us this one over in Ephesians chapter 6, where he told us to take the whole armor of God and to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, and that is the high places of the angelic realm. We are not wrestling against Washington, D.C. They are no threat to us. Oh, if they, were to, if they were to send down some new edicts that would persecute the saints of God, it would actually purify the church. I don't want that to happen for the sake of God's mercy toward us, and that we can live in peace without that. But they are not our threat. And as soon as we get off track, that becomes one of the objects for some churches. I think of growing up under Carl McIntyre's influence and the 20th century Reformation hour that was broadcast in my home, and that was to worry about politics. Paul never worried about politics. There's not a sentence in the epistles of the Lord Jesus Christ given by Paul that have anything to do with worrying about government. And he had a government to worry about. It was the Roman Empire. We have spiritual wickedness that we need to fight against. And we fight against it with a power that is greater than that spiritual wickedness. And it's the power of the Holy Ghost. It's the power of God Himself by His Spirit. Praying in the Holy Ghost. Holding your hand here, look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. There's a whole lot of praying going on in the name of Christianity, but not much is in the Spirit. You can't tell if a man's praying in the Spirit by his choice of words, for sure, by the tone of his voice. The Bible doesn't tell us such things. You know, we've had people come into our assemblies, and they have, their opinions have ranged from, I got Holy Ghost goosebumps being in your assembly, to... That church is dead and it ain't got any spirit. It doesn't matter what, how men judge us. What matters is how God's going to judge us. Are we praying in the spirit? And we want to pray in the spirit. Romans chapter 8 tells us why we want to pray in the spirit. Verse 26. Likewise, the spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Look at the advantages of those two verses. God the Holy Spirit knows what we need better than you know what you need. God the Holy Spirit is able to communicate with God with groanings that cannot be explained linguistically to our intelligent level. And God knows the mind of the Spirit and knows those prayers and receives them. We want to pray in the Spirit. 
Now turn to Ephesians chapter 5, and let's remind ourselves of a few things about what it means to pray in the Spirit. That doesn't mean to act like Benny Hinn. It means to act like the Apostle Paul. Benny Hinn pretending he's praying in the Spirit and saying, I'm getting a word of wisdom. I'm getting a word of wisdom. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Jesus. There's four persons in the Godhead. That isn't praying in the Spirit. If you don't think he said that, go, go Google Benny Hinn and Godhead and Trinity. That's not praying in the Spirit. Right. We're going to learn about praying in the Spirit right now. Ephesians chapter 5. It says in verse 18, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Then it goes on to describe what people that are filled with the Spirit like to do. And I'm glad that you like to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and that you like to sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord, because that's what verse 19 says will result from verse 18. But verse 18, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit wants to fill you. The Spirit will fill you. But you choose the Spirit to fill you. You let the Spirit fill you. I am not talking about being born again. I am not talking about getting your name in the book of life. I am talking about the power of the Spirit of God coming into your soul that will direct you towards spiritual things and lead you in paths of righteousness and teach you about the Son of God. You make a choice to be filled with that Spirit. If you spend your time worried about the things of this life, your job, your house, your children, your education, your bodily exercise and those things, you are not choosing to be filled with the Spirit of God because it has no place in your life. You choose. You humble yourself before God at the throne of grace and say, Lord, fill me with your Spirit. So you ask for it. And you open yourself to the Spirit of God. Not any Spirit, but the Spirit of God. You cho- This is an imperative verb construction. Be filled with the Spirit. Since filled is a passive verb, meaning someone else is filling you, but it's telling you to do it, that means God will fill you with the Spirit if you will choose and seek And desire that filling. And make that the goal of your life. Rather than partying and being drunken with an excess of wine. Let's think of a few more things. About being, praying in the Spirit of God. And being filled with the Spirit. We pray submissively. For the God's will through the Spirit. Rather than our own will. When we get down on our knees. We submit ourselves to the will of the Spirit of God. Thy will, not mine, be done, O Lord. We pray like the Lord Jesus Christ. And God the Holy Spirit is not grieved with that prayer because He has a will that is superior to ours. And we should submit ours to His. We walk in the Spirit. How do you walk in the Spirit? You do the things the Spirit of God says delight Him. What are they? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. That is the fruit of the Spirit. It is the opposite of the flesh. The works of the flesh are just as clear. Adultery, fornication, lying, anger, hatred, drunkenness, and so forth, described in the same place, Galatians chapter 5. This is important to us, to pray in the Spirit. All religions have praying. They prayed in the Tennessee Titans Stadium. But how about praying in the Spirit? And it's not falling on the ground, slain in the Spirit. It's not barking like a dog because you've got Holy Spirit barking gift. It's not laughter in the Spirit. It's not being drunk in the Spirit. It's praying in the Holy Ghost. The most powerful being in the universe, God Himself, by His Spirit. He moved upon the face of the waters and He brought forth light and land. And He can move in your heart and lead you to Jesus Christ that you'll never be led astray by these false teachers, by the grace of God. How do we pray in the Spirit? We walk in the Spirit of God by choosing to live those things. Joy is a choice. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. To love others, to live joyfully, and to be at peace is your choice. God has told you to live that way. It's a commandment. 
And so you walk in the Spirit of God that way. You avoid sin in your life. When you sin, you grieve and quench the Holy Spirit of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, Ephesians 4.30. You grieve the Spirit of God. Last Sunday, I gave you a passage of Scripture. Some of you told me that it was very meaningful to you. It was very meaningful to me. Isaiah 63, 7-10. Verses 7-9 through describe God's great blessings toward Israel. But then we have verse 10, and it says, But they rebelled and vexed His Holy Spirit. You say, that is terrible. Those Israelites vexing the Holy Spirit of God. We grieve and quench the Holy Spirit of God every time we sin. And as soon as we sin, we have quenched the fiery power of the Holy Spirit to bless us. Our prayers are no longer being aided by the Spirit of God because we have unconfessed sin in our lives. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Do you want to fight the good fight of faith and oppose the false teachers and the compromise of religion that's going on all around us? We build ourselves up on the most holy faith and we pray in the Holy Ghost. All of a sudden, getting in a stadium and praying no longer means anything to us. We want to get in our closet and pray. If you're praying in the Spirit, you don't want to be heard and seen by men. You want to be heard and seen by God. You don't care about what men think of your praying. You're praying alone in secret and your Father in Heaven will reward you openly because you're praying in the Spirit. If you pray to be seen or heard of men, you have your reward. You were seen and heard of men. And that's all you get. We want to pray in the Spirit. Oh, it doesn't take eloquence. Or should I say, it doesn't take your eloquence. It takes His eloquence. And what is His eloquence? Groanings which cannot be uttered. Sounds pretty good. That's a prayer language you're not speaking. As the charismatics would try to teach us, that's a prayer language that God Himself is speaking on our behalf. If you vex and grieve the Holy Spirit of God, what did it say in Isaiah 63.10? He will turn to be your enemy. God, the Holy Spirit, will turn to be your enemy. Instead of praying for you, He'll be praying against you because you have sinned and not confess those sins. You have rebelled against God's Word, and you have vexed the Holy Spirit that wrote that Word. We set our affection on spiritual things. We mind the things of the Spirit of God. You want to pray in the Spirit? Then mind the things of the Spirit. When you get down to pray, you are not all wrapped up in your daily bread. You are. I know that Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread, but you are not wrapped up there. You are also wrapped up in... Forgive me my sins as I forgive those that sin against me. And Thy kingdom come, and Thy will be done on earth, O Lord, as it is done in heaven, because you care about the spiritual things you should be praying for. You should be praying for soul revival more than you should be praying for your physical health. You should be praying for the riches of glory to become real to your soul rather than riches in this world. That's praying in the Spirit of God. We confess our sins quickly. And in every prayer, to continue to pray in the Spirit. David said in his great prayer of confession in Psalm 51, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He knew the importance of praying in the Holy Spirit. And he was basing that upon his confession of his great sins. Those who have little regard for the Spirit's book, it's impossible for them to pray in the Spirit. The Spirit wrote this book. You should love what it teaches and says. You should obey it. Love its delightful promises. That's praying in the Spirit. We pray according to the will of God. God's told us His will for our lives. The important issues are already settled for what His will is for our lives. And we should pray for those things because God says He hears those things when we pray according to the will of God. And we ask for it. You know, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus said, If ye, being evil fathers, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in Heaven give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? When was the last time you asked for the Holy Spirit as a gift from God to you while you were praying? I don't mean in public. I don't mean like these crusades and rallies. I mean in your closet for God to give you His Holy Spirit. 
When did you last ask the Lord to help you pray in that spirit? This is how you pray in the Holy Ghost. You live a, whole, you live a spiritual life. You love spiritual things. You confess your sins. You ask the Spirit of God to fill you. You submit yourself to the Spirit of God filling you. You submit yourself to the Spirit of God's will for your life. You love His Word. You set your affection on spiritual things. You confess your sins. You ask for the Spirit of God. And your praying will be different. And you will not be led astray by the public praying of men. Because the Bible tells me this in Matthew 23, 14. Jesus said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye, for a pretense, make long prayers and devour widows' houses. Oh, all religions have lots of praying, but not all praying is praying in the Holy Ghost. Praying in the Holy Ghost means we are totally spiritually oriented and we would never be led astray by men who are pandering to the flesh or turning the grace of God into lasciviousness because it would never satisfy our spirit-filled souls. All we want is to know about the things of heaven and the things of Christ. Back to Jude. Back to Jude. There will be, of course, you can review these verses later for those of you that truly want to pray in the Holy Ghost. And I pray that there's many of you. It's not a sound. It's not a look. It's not a place. It's not a way. It's, it's unutterable. You can't hear the Holy Ghost praying on your behalf. But you can live a Spirit-filled life and walk in the Spirit. It says in verse 21, Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now when it says, here we go again, let me just share this with you briefly. When it says keep yourselves in the love of God, is that God's love of us or our love of God? It can be either. This genitive construction, the love of God, doesn't tell you one thing about whose love it is, whether it's God's love for us or our love for God. Because the Bible uses that four-word combination sometimes to describe God's love for us, sometimes our love for God. The way you tell is by the context. And what are we dealing with here? We are dealing with false teachers and their false churches and those that follow them being led away from loving God to loving men and having them in admiration because of advantage. As it says in verse 16, we have men giving themselves over to lasciviousness where they become lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. This is our love of God. God's love of us, you don't keep yourselves in it. God keeps you in it. There is nothing in heaven or in hell or in heaven that can separate God's love from us. Romans 8, 38 and 39. But you can lose your love of God. And that's the emphasis here. Look at Matthew chapter 24. We know our con- Matthew 24, verses 11 and 12. We know our context here is false teachers and a lascivious, graceless, spiritless form of religion. Matthew chapter 24. Jesus addressed His apostles with the very same point. Then they took the lesson and repeated it in Jude, verse 21. Matthew 24, 11. Many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. Isn't that exactly what Jude's about? Exactly. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Because iniquity is abounding, sin thriving, growing, not being checked by teachers, but allowing it to grow unfettered by false religion that doesn't care how you live. Iniquity abounds, the love of many shall wax cold. What love waxes cold? The most important love of all, our love of God. The most important as far as it relates to us and what we're to be doing. Because iniquity is all around us, the love of God is quenched. We lose it. It gets cold. Remember Jesus Christ's words to the church at Ephesus. I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. This is keeping ourselves in the love of God. It is something we must commit ourselves to. It is the first commandment to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Our flesh hates God and loves the world. If we do not fight the good fight of faith and love every day, 
we will love this world as well. We will befriend this world and commit spiritual adultery against the God who saved us. It is something we must do. Keep yourselves in the love of God. What have you done this week to keep yourself in the love of God? Are you doing things through the week to keep loving God? Because you will lose your love for God. It can be dulled. It can wax cold. You can lose your first love. What did Jesus say was the remedy? Remember from whence thou art fallen, repent and do the first works. Go back to doing those things that you did when you were in the greatest degree of love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. How do we do it? Love is a choice. Do you face every day as your chief goal for that day? Not to get ahead in the job. Not to accomplish some new PR in the gym. What is your goal for each day? It should be to love the Lord thy God more than you did yesterday. To love God more. That is the first and the greatest commandment. That is our chief duty. And it, we can slip from it. Look at, look at Hebrews chapter 3 and the warning that Paul gives to the Hebrew Christians. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take heed, brethren. He's telling us to take heed. There is something we need to learn and we need to know. Take heed, brethren. Hebrews 3.12 lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. When iniquity is abounding, your heart can be deceived, and you can lose your love of God. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden this world is more excited. You talk more about, I watch you. You watch you. You know your heart. I know my heart. Do you know what I'm talking about? All of a sudden, you get caught up in the things of this life. It could be a hobby. It could be a sport. It could be a job. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. It could be education. It could be money. It could be all sorts of things. It could be politics. You get caught up. And all of a sudden, you're loving that instead of loving the Lord thy God. He wants all of us. And anything less than 100% is not enough. It is, it is not keeping yourself in the love of God to love Him 80%. Because that's totally inadequate for Him. That is spiritual adultery. He does not allow you to have 20% for someone or something else. So we must keep ourselves in the love of God. And if we keep ourselves in the love of God, no man can come by and lead us astray. I don't care if he smiles as sweetly as Joel. I don't care if he wears pretty Hawaiian shirts like Rick. I don't care if he calls himself an apostle like our own Greenville's Ron. None of that will move us. Do you know why? Because we love the Lord our God. No man will lead you astray. No thing will lead you astray because you're loving the Lord thy God. Keep yourselves in the love of God and this will save you from the false teachers and false religion that Jude was warning about. We choose not to love the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love them both. Jesus said no man can serve two masters. For either he will love the one and hate the other, or he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't do it both. You have got to sell out to loving God. He is chief. He is everything. All of your affection and desire is for him. And if you were to lose all, but you still had God, you'd be rich. And you'd be full. Is that your heart today? It's little different than any other love. When you love something, guess what? You talk about it. You pray for it. You think on it. You read about it. You sing about it. Doesn't the world have love songs? You, you want to hear about it. You keep friends that appreciate it. You resent any competitors. You work up that thing because you want to love that thing. You choose to love it. And you stir yourself up all day long with it. Are you stirring yourself up to love the Lord thy God? Right. Keep yourselves in the love of God because you can slip and not love the Lord thy God as you should. And if you're not loving the Lord thy God first, and you're not praying in the Spirit, and you're not built up on the most holy faith, I'll tell you where you're going. You're going down into some false religion. You're going to be led astray by the error of the wicked.
Verse 21, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Oh, yes, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Have we obtained mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ already? Oh, yes, we have. Yes, we have. But I want to tell you this. You ain't seen nothing yet. You have not seen the mercy of God yet. Like you're going to see it. Do you know what you're going to see? Heaven. Jesus Christ in the flesh. Your eternal inheritance. Your name in the book of life. And glorified bodies forevermore. That is mercy. You ain't seen nothing yet. Forgive my language. You know exactly what I'm saying. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. What is the blessed hope of the believer? To have a crusade in Washington? Know the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't talk about it enough. We're supposed to comfort one another with these words. Do you know if every day we were stirring each other up to love God more, to be looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ, to build ourselves up on our most holy faith and praying in the Holy Ghost, we would be pure from false religion and false teachers. Think with me for a second. Andrea, I'm going to use you for an example. Will you let me? I knew you would. I thought you would. If your father and mother were to tell you that over the next year they're going to give you motorcycle lessons and the four of you are going to fly to California, he is going to rent four motorcycles and you can invite any friend you want to come to ride one of those, boy or girl, and you are going to take the coastal highway the length of California. Let's say your father and mother told you that and it's a year away. Do you know what you'd be thinking about every single day? That trip. Do you know what you'd be talking about all the time? That trip. Do you know what you'd be preparing for all the time? That trip. For a whole year. I'm not picking on you one bit. I'm picking on all of us. Do you know how disgusting that is? I want to tell you about a trip. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back to split this atmosphere wide open and to take take all of us out of this world and take us home to live with Him forever. And He's going to show us pleasures at the right hand of God forevermore that will exceed any motorcycle trip on the coast of California. It would be a good trip, wouldn't it, Sister Deborah? But it doesn't compare to heaven at all. And do you know how excited we get about stupid things like that in our lives? I know that each of you, and and I know myself, that if there is some future event that is coming, any of you looking forward to future events? Can you, you think about it every day? Adam, you don't want to look at me. Joel, Joel and Wendy, for our visitors, there's couples in here about to get married in the next few months. Joel, you think about it once, once a week? Matthew and Angela, once a week? Isn't that a shame? Isn't it a shame? We're already married. We have a bridegroom coming for us, brethren. He's coming on a white horse. He's going to tear us out of this world. And we're going to live with Him forever. Glorified bodies with an eternal inheritance. But we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it. The Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout. Come up! Oh, sweet. And you know, every cemetery, is everybody becomes a Baptist in that day. You know, they were buried and they rose again. They were immersed in the dirt and out they come because the Lord's going to draw them out. Even the wicked and the righteous will be in the presence of the Lord. How long? For so shall we be with the Lord. But we get distracted. Do you know how false religion can get a toehold in people's lives? Because the second coming of Jesus Christ isn't important enough to them, so they fill that up with other events, programs and projects, crusades and other activities. You can't be led astray by the error of the wicked if you get these four things locked down. We build ourselves up on our most holy faith. We pray in the Holy Ghost. We keep ourselves in the love of God. And there's one thing we're looking for more than anything else. It's not getting 16 and getting a driver's license. It's not turning 21 and being able to do other things. It's not getting married. It's not turning 60 and being able to retire. It's none of those things. It's not getting Social Security. 
It's Jesus Christ that's coming. That is the spiritually minded saint of God. Titus chapter 2 tells us that God has saved us so that we would be looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you know there's a whole lot more verses that I'm leaving out, but the Apostle Paul said there is a crown of righteousness laid up for him when he gets to meet Jesus Christ, and that same crown is also laid up for those that love His appearing. Love His appearing. We don't talk about it enough. If you believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ and He's coming for you, your life is hid with Christ in God and you are dead. Do you know what that means? You are dead to this world because there is nothing this world can offer you to even compare. You are dead. Not not physically dead. Not spiritually dead. But practically dead to their things. Because as second, that, that's Colossians chapter 3. As Peter would put it in Second Peter chapter 3, because everything outside there is going to get burned up. You know, I once had a Jag convertible, and my brother-in-law told me when he saw the car, he knew I was probably a little attached to it. He said, that car's got a hot future. I like that. That car's got a hot future because the Lord's going to melt it. The Lord's going to melt it, and it was, it's going to be dissolved, and so is everything you're working on. Don't pick on me. I know you're thinking right now, what a man that's in love with the world. That was years ago. And I'll tell you what, I was carnally minded when I had that stupid car. I'd take a sledgehammer to it right now and be worth a couple thousand dollars just to be able to do it. If you, as long as you paid. Car, that, none of those things mean anything. Brethren, that's all I have for you, this first assembly. Do you know what the Bible says? Building up yourselves on your most holy faith. Let's hold that apostolic doctrine and, and encourage each other to hold it. Let's pray in the Holy Ghost. Let's pray spiritually, submissive to His will, asking for the Spirit of God to fill us. Let's keep ourselves in the love of God by encouraging each other to love God more than anything else, more than anyone else. You young couples that are about to get married, if you do not keep these things first in your lives, you will hurt in your marriages. The best marriages are for those that put the Lord Jesus Christ first, are looking together for the second coming of Christ. My wife and I had some precious hours together yesterday. We just looked at each other and said, it doesn't get any better in this world than right now. And do you know what we were doing? Sharing. Don't think that you can be happy in marriage without putting these things first. We can't succeed as a church. Building up yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, because He's bringing eternal life. That exceeds everything in this world. No man can lead you astray if those things are first in your life. If you have failed in one or more of those things, confess your sins to God. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And dedicate yourselves to Him right now in your heart. Lord, thank You for the message this morning. Thank You for those four things. I have slipped. They are going to be in my life this day and from here on out by Your grace. Give me your Holy Spirit to keep my commitment that I'm making right now. May Jesus Christ be praised.